0: Well, happy Palm Sunday. I saw the girls brought in a couple of uh, palm branches, um, which brought back fond memories as a kid. I remember, I think every time, every Palm Sunday, the Catholic Church made sure that everybody had palm branches. And uh, there was a myriad of ways that you could uh, irritate your siblings with those, which was a lot of fun. I thought about maybe having some for this morning, but Sam told me that he'd have a mule for me to... Uh, ride in on this morning and uh, he didn't come through. So that could have been a spectacle as well as what that mule could have done to our carpet or that donkey. Um, But today is the day we remember the final week of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. It's a day in the church here when traditionally we mark the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, also known as the triumphal entry. On our main text this morning, Luke 19 through uh, 28 through 44 Um, It's not going to actually uncover why we call today Palm Sunday because they mentioned nothing about it. But they are mentioned in both Matthew and John's Gospels as Jesus entered Jerusalem in Matthew 21.8. It says, a very large crowd spread their clothes by the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And then on John 12, 12 and 13, it says, the next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. In ancient days, palm branches were symbols of victory, triumph, and peace. They were used by the Maccabees when they celebrated defeating the Greeks 2,100 years prior. The king and his army rode into the city with much fanfare as the crowds cheered and waved their palm branches celebrating their nation's victory. So now that we have a little bit of a background concerning palm branches, let's go ahead and turn into our text this morning, Luke 19, 28 through 44. And before we read there, why don't you you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you that there's nothing insignificant in your book. And we're thankful that you've left us everything that you want us to know about yourself, about your character, about your goodness, about your greatness, about your plan of redemption for your people, Lord, and today's message is no different. Open our hearts, open our minds to the reality of Jesus this morning. Open our minds and our hearts to what Palm Sunday really represents for us. Help us to see it in in a new and a fresh way. Help us to see it in such a way on how it truly speaks into our lives today and every day. Jesus, we pray that you would be exalted, that you would be glorified, and that we maybe today would fall in greater love with you through studying your word. And we ask that in your name, amen. Luke 19, starting in verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He said, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. So Jesus is returning to Jerusalem at the time when the Jews throughout the world would gather there to celebrate the Passover, commemorating a time when Moses, but through God, set the Israelites free. He instructed them to sacrifice spotless lambs and spread their blood on their door frames, thus indicating their faith in God. And through the blood sacrifice, he would save them from death and lead them to freedom from their Roman oppressors. What the crowds missed was Jesus, the son of God, who was coming to Jerusalem as the lamb of God, as a perfect spotless sacrifice who would shed his blood for their forgiveness. If you remember a couple of months ago in our study in Matthew's gospel, we focused on John the Baptist as the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. And upon seeing Jesus for the first time, he declares this to the people, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was Jesus' mission all along. That's why he came in human flesh and now his time had drawn near. He came to Jerusalem, not to reign as king, but to die during the celebration of Passover. The Passover in the entire Jewish sacrificial system could never save anyone from sin. It always was meant to point to their need for God's forgiveness and for a future Messiah, one who would come to be the true sacrifice. God in human flesh who would shed his blood to truly save them from their sin. This is what Jesus came to Jerusalem to do. Right away, Luke describes the surrounding area where all this was taking place. Verse 29, he says, and he approached Bethpage in Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of the disciples. And we've got a map for you this morning. And if you take a look at it, Jesus spent two days in Jericho, a city down by the Dead Sea. You can see that down, I think, on the right side over there by Bethany. And it's where he healed two blind beggars, one named Bartimaeus. It was also when he had invited Zacchaeus, the tax collector, to lunch, where his life was forever changed. As you can see on the map, it was an uphill walk, approximately 13 miles from Jericho to Bethany. I tried to find a map where you could actually see the elevation being depicted. Jericho seen at the bottom right is 730 feet below sea level. Bethany is 1,516 feet above sea level and around 13 miles from Jericho. And the Mount of Olives is 2,670 feet above sea level. The entire journey that Jesus and the crowds had was an absolutely uphill trek. 4,000 feet in elevation and was close to 17 miles in distance to Jerusalem. Bethany, a small village two miles east of Jerusalem, was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, good friends that Jesus visited often, and Lazarus, as you remember, was the one that Jesus had brought back from the dead. Jesus went there just prior to his trek to Jerusalem to spend time in the comfort of his good friends. Scriptures say that many heard that he was there with Lazarus and crowds gathered to see not only Jesus, but this man that was raised from the dead. Can you imagine being those who actually attended Lazarus' funeral, and now you've run with the crowds to see and talk with him? And how could this be that this man who was once dead is now alive? Let's read again uh, verses 30 through 35. So Jesus tells his two disciples, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it. Just he had told them, as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? And they said, the Lord needs it. So, Jesus has been in Jerusalem before. And every time that he had gone, he had walked. He never insisted on riding there. This time he instructs two of his disciples to go back into the village of Bethpage, where they will find a young donkey, one that has never been ridden. And this was for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. A young donkey is known as a foal or a colt. And I want you to listen to Matthew's account. Matthew 21, two and and three, it says, go into the village ahead of you At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal, untie them and bring them to me. Matthew tells us something that many people miss. It's something that's never depicted in visual portrayals of this event. Jesus instructed them to untie both the mama and her foal and bring them both to Jesus. It would have made sense to have the mother there because the young foal would have easily panicked around a crowd so big that was shouting so loud it would have been much calmer for the mother to be at its side. It also seems to make more sense for Jesus to have ridden the donkey, not the foal. What was this about? Traditionally, a king would ride into a city on the largest horse possible. If a general had a large horse or a tall horse, the king's horse always had to be larger and taller so that when riding into the city, he would tower over all the others. This was a sign of power, authority, and royalty. He'd have his royal family, his army, trumpeters and large crowds following him. This is how a king would truly enter into a city, but not Jesus. There are no regal clothes that he's wearing, no royal family. There's no huge army following him. There's no blowing of trumpets. He's not riding on a horse, but instead is almost as low as he could go. He's not even on a full grown donkey. But on a foal. It's possible his feet were almost dragging the ground. It, it must've looked kind of silly that a grown man was riding this young foal <clears throat> that had never been ridden while its mama was walking right next to it. I believe Jesus is trying to tell us something here, something that he had preached over and over throughout his three-year ministry. He had made his mission clear from the beginning. He preached the gospel to them repeatedly He was not coming to take his throne in Jerusalem, as conquering king. Jesus was coming to die as their savior. At the time of Jesus, Jewish nationalism had led to an expectation of a political Messiah to deliver them from Roman control and oppression. One who would sit on David's throne and would reestablish David's kingdom. This was the promise they'd waited for for so long and now it's finally here. The prophecy of Isaiah 96 now being fulfilled upon his entry, of the increase of his government and peace, there would be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. So when they see Jesus riding towards Jews, Jerusalem on a fold, they remember Zechariah's prophecy spoken 500 years prior. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is what they were expecting. This is what they longed for. This is what they wanted all their lives. Imagine their joy, their excitement upon seeing Jesus coming towards Jerusalem riding as Zechariah predicted on a foal. Finally, our rescuer is here. They knew the Old Testament prophecies that spoke of a coming conquering King Messiah who would reign over Israel forever. And Jesus one day would fulfill that prophecy, but not on this day, not on his first coming. You see, Jesus' path to Jerusalem was never meant to be one of royalty one where he would take his throne as their king and political ruler. They missed it. They missed their need to be saved from their sin. They refused to see that their Old Testament scriptures pointed to a Messiah who would fulfill God's plan of redemption. Jesus' path from heaven to Jerusalem was always one of utter humility. The eternal God, creator of all, the King of kings and the Lord of lords the one who rules and reigns on high, the one who sovereignly rules over kings and nations and governments, departs to his glories in heaven and he takes on human flesh and he's conceived in the womb of a virgin teen mother. He's born in a dirty, smelly stable. His manger is a feeding trough for animals. His family are refugees on the run, hiding from a murderous king's threats. He lives life simply as a, carpenter's son as his apprentice and he declares to his disciples that he has no place to lay his head. And now he rides a foal into Jerusalem to his death, not to sit on a throne, but to hang on a cross. What we need to see here is that nothing is happening by chance. From start to finish, Jesus has been in total control of every detail of his life and ministry. He is on a divine timetable. He's doing things precisely when the Father wants them done and as he determines they're to be done, he perfectly follows the will of God the Father and it's no different here. This is God's eternal plan of redemption set in motion before the beginning of time. That's why the Old Testament prophets could write about it hundreds of years before it happened because God knew it was going to happen this way and he revealed it to the prophets so that they could set out signs for the Jews to look for. When you see this, you will know that your Messiah has come. God is orchestrating the events around Passion Week as he has throughout time. God's sovereignty and omniscience is also seen in Jesus' knowledge of the donkeys and where they could be found and questions that the owner would ask the disciples. It wasn't as if Jesus scheduled a donkey rental on this specific date and sent his disciples with a rental agreement to go get the donkeys at this time. This is more evidence that Jesus was truly God who knows and sees things that no mere human can see or know. And I see a beautiful message to find in all this verse. If Jesus knew exactly where these two animals would be and in what village they were, and what home they were tied up and who owned them. And he knew the complete history, even to the point where the young one had never been written. Jesus knows everything about your life as well. Not just about your sin and your greatest failures. He knows about your pain and your worries and your fears. He would take those sins and those failures and those worries and those fears that you have to the cross. That's why he's now called our great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness and he lovingly intercedes on our behalf both day and night before the throne of the father, which is known as the throne of grace. And what I find amazing in this is that while Jesus knows us completely, the good, the bad, and the ugly, he still loves us fully. Isn't that what each of us really desperately wants? to actually have someone in our life who knows everything about us, even the most ugly and shameful parts of us, and yet still loves us perfectly, accepts us and approves of us unconditionally, even though he sees and knows it all. He loves us so much that he intentionally and purposely rode into Jerusalem, knowing full well that it was a road that led to pain and suffering. I think all we can say is, wow, what a savior. Let's continue on in our text and let's read verses 35 through 38 one more time. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that he had seen, they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. So the disciples make a makeshift saddle for him by placing clothes on it for Jesus to sit on. They help him get up on the foal. And as he's going along, other people were placing their cloaks on the road before him and others were placing palm branches on the ground before him as a recognition of his royalty, something that you would do for a king. Is there any way to know just how many people were surrounding Jesus in this moment? Well, I'm gonna speculate for a minute. You may not agree with my analysis and that's okay, but I guess when it's all said and done, we can say there were a whole lot of people there. And the historical record a Passover that took place 10 years after that, Jewish historian Josephus tells us that 260,000 lambs were slaughtered. Can you imagine that? What a scene. It says that there was typically one sacrificial lamb for every 10 people. So if that's accurate, simple multiplication leads us to the conclusion that approximately 2.6 million people gathered in Jerusalem to commemorate and celebrate the Jewish Passover. Some scholars estimate that maybe five to 10% of those people were following Jesus at his triumphal entry. So if we took the smaller percentage of 5%, 130,000 people would be part of Jesus' parade. That's huge. That's more than any professional or college stadium could hold that we know. Matthew gives us a specific reason for the crowd's praises of Jesus. He says, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. First, I believe the term disciples may be used loosely. Maybe it means his close band of disciples were the ones who started a chance of praise. But there were not 130,000 devoted followers of Christ at this point. There were more like 130,000 Jews who were overjoyed at the thought that their political king who would lead them to victory over their Roman oppressors was finally here. The reason Luke gives for their joyous praise were for the miracles Jesus performed. And in Matthew 4, 23 and 24, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region followed him. Jesus had made a great name for himself as a miracle worker. He had healed leprosy with a touch. He made the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. He commanded demonic spirits to depart from the people they possessed and they obeyed him. He stilled storms and walked on water. He had turned water into wine at a wedding feast and turned five loaves of bread and two fish into food for thousands. He even brought people back to life. They had never seen or heard of one who possessed such power and authority. And when John the Baptist was in prison, discouraged, having doubts, questioning whether Jesus was truly the Messiah who would usher in his kingdom, Jesus instructed his disciples to go to him and say this, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. What he wanted his disciples to tell John was that the evidence of the kingdom of God being near was all the miracles that were being performed through him. I'm sure many in the crowd believed Jesus could just speak and Pilate would perish and the Romans would flee. Everywhere Jesus went, there was a story about the miraculous things he had done and One scholar estimates that there were 37 specific miracles that we can find in the gospel accounts. Many scholars believe that hundreds, if not thousands of people were touched by one of those miracles. And John concludes his gospel with these words, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would be able to have room for the things that would be written. I mean, it's incredible when we read the Gospels and we read the miracles that he did perform, 37 different ones, but to think about those words of John are mind-blowing. The entire world would not have the room to contain all the books that would be written about all that he had done in the short time he was there. That's amazing. That's incredible. Were there thousands of people in the crowd who had been personally touched by one of those miracles? We can see why so many people were excited and overjoyed and believed he was the one who would take his throne. This is what the multitude of people shouted as Jesus wrote in, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. These words come from Psalm 118, which is part of the Hillel. And this is a coronation psalm. They're celebrating him as God's great and glorious king. Matthew adds that they shouted, Hosanna in the highest. We sang that this morning. And what Chris says is that we typically do see that as meaning praise God. But the literal meaning in the Hebrew means, oh, great king, save us now, save us now. Jesus, rise up and save us now from Roman oppression and rule. Be our conquering hero, do it now. Reign on David's throne forever, now. The problem is that what they wanted was not what they desperately needed. They wanted Jesus to be the solution to their temporal problems. And they missed that he came to be their eternal solution, a solution to what really ailed them, how their sin separated them from a holy God. And there was no amount of religion or good works that could remedy this. Isn't that like so many people today who are looking for a political hero to save the day, believing that things like inflation and decreasing stocks and open borders and wars in Ukraine and threats from China and crimes in our cities and shootings in our schools and secular values are our greatest problem. God, bring us a political hero, a savior who can rescue us from all of this. Followers of Christ today are placing greater hope in a political hero to come and save the day over and above the one who came to save us from our sin. We fail to realize what the Jews in Jesus' day fail to understand. Jesus is what is needed. Jesus is what this country needs. Jesus is what this world needs. Jesus is what every individual living today needs. Jesus alone can save because our problems today are no different than the problems that of the Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, which is the sinful heart of man. Every problem the world faces is due to the sinful heart of man. There's no political remedy for that. There never has been and there never will be. The world doesn't need a political hero. It needs the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Maybe it's time for the followers of Christ to forsake their pursuit of a political hero. Instead, get on their knees and seek the one who only can rescue us from what truly ails this world. In this hour of need, we must become a people of prayer looking to the only Savior who can truly save us. Amen. Let's read verse 39 and 40. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. There were several times that we can see in the gospel accounts that before the people and even the religious leaders, Jesus claimed to be God by making statements like I and the father are one or before Abraham was, I am. The religious leaders knew what he was claiming. They accused him of blasphemy in the moment, a mere man claiming to be God, and the penalty in Jewish law for this crime was death. Every time he would say something that they knew he was claiming to be God, they would pick up rocks to stone him to death. But Jesus would always slip away and, because it wasn't his time to die for the sins of the world. Again, even... In these moments, we can see that Jesus was always in charge of the timetable. For the last three years of Jesus' ministry, while the religious leaders wanted him dead, they didn't do really anything to eliminate him. They kind of tolerated Jesus. And most of the time he was away in Jerusalem and Galilee and slipping away from public attention. But now Jesus is accepting the worship of the crowds right in front of them for he knows who he is. He knows the praise that he deserves. He knows that he is worthy of their worship. The Pharisees are incredulous by this once again, that he would accept the praise only worthy of God. And the Pharisees were shrewd. They knew that with so many people praising him that they had no control over the crowd. So they turned to Jesus figuring that he would silence them. And they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them immediately to stop worshiping you. And Jesus refuses and says, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Why is Jesus now unconcerned about causing the religious leaders to be enraged over him? Why is he not concerned about Seeing the crowds get riled up about his presence. It's because he knew that his time was at hand. In Matthew 26, the disciple reveals that the religious leaders planned to actually arrest Jesus during the Passover, but they planned to execute him after the Passover when the crowds had died down, when the vast majority of people returned to their homes in their cities, in their countries. They said, We must not kill him during the feast, or there will be a riot. They believed this timetable would work best for them as if they were the ones that really had control over the timetable. God's plans were that Jesus, the true Passover lamb, would die on Friday, the same time as the Jews were sacrificing over 250,000 Passover lambs. All along, this had been God's sovereign timetable. Jesus' upcoming death is not a victory for evil. It's not a failure of God's plan, of, but it was a fulfillment of it. And just a short time before this, Jesus told his disciples this. He was clear in Luke eighteen thirty-one and 33. He says, in taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going to Jerusalem and everything written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. See, we are going to Jerusalem just for this purpose. Jesus knows this all along and he heads straight into it. He heads straight for it. This is God's sovereign plan of redemption since the beginning of time. He was always orchestrating these events. He was always in charge. He was always in control. So what did Jesus mean when he said that if I stopped the praise of these people, even the stones would cry out? Well, first, I think in part, he's speaking of how the whole design of the universe is for him to be praised. Psalm 19, one through four says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language. Their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. The scriptures declare that all things were made by him and for him. The entire universe declares his glory. Animate and inanimate objects alike point to the praises of the creator. And while this is true, I believe the real meaning of the stones crying out is found in the final verses of our text today. So let's read those one more time. Verse 41, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. So Jesus is finally at the crest of his journey. He's in the Mount of Olives, the place where you could actually look down and see the city of Jerusalem. A beautiful sight for any tourist to see, but here Jesus weeps when seeing the city. There are times in the gospel accounts where we see that Jesus wept too specifically. The first was at the tomb of Lazarus, which in the Greek, when it says Jesus wept, is the word "dakru," which means he got teary-eyed or he shed a tear. But here, when it says he wept, it's the, he, it's the Greek word "klao," which means uncontrollable weeping or heaving in sorrowful pain and anguish, crying uncontrollably like a baby. This is the level of of sorrow that Jesus is feeling in his heart as he looks upon the city of Jerusalem. You know, and this has kind of been how I've been lately. Lisa and I went and saw the, the movie, The Jesus Revolution. And if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to go see it. But while I was watching the movie in the theater, I broke down several times crying which was i felt unusual and i th- began to think why 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 was i doing this and the first time i remember crying was when i saw the pain and the anguish that the drug culture and the sex culture were causing in the lives of these people and how they were destroying their lives. And it reminded me back of the time when I was into the drugs and the alcohol and the effects that it was having on mine and my friends' lives. And I just, I broke down crying. But then another time I, I started crying because, you know, these hippies were getting saved all over the place. And, and this, this old, like, country church about the size of ours, you know, it had an older congregation. And they dressed in the suit and ties, and, you know, and, and the women wore dresses. And, you know, they were doing their thing. And, you know, there's maybe 30, 40 people who are left in the church. And the, the minister was faithfully preaching each and every Sunday. And they were faithfully attending. And then all of a sudden, these hippies started showing up. Oh, it just caused consternation. And how can we let these dirty people with no shoes, barefooted, you know, trudging their dirt and mud into our sanctuary? And there's some guys who actually, the deacons of the church, the elders, you know, with the pastor, you know, they're confronting him over, you know, why are you allowing this? And we're, we're going to leave if you don't stop allowing this. And he said, basically, this is the Lord's work. And the one morning he was at the door with a basin and a towel and he was washing their feet so they wouldn't get the mud in on the carpet. And more and more these hippies are getting saved and this church is exploding and so much so that they had to purchase a tent that was twice the size of their congregation to hold all the people that were coming and I started weeping the thing that God was doing in these people's lives. And then another time, they're, they're out at the ocean, and there's just hundreds and thousands of, of teens and hippies, and they're, they're going, and they're being baptized. They were getting saved, and I just moved my heart and said, oh, Lord, how I long to be part of something like this, like revival going on in our midst, in our time. So in our neighborhood Bible study, they, I shared with... Um, the group about my experience. And one of the guys who's, you know, he's the funny guy. He's, he's about my age, but he's got a great sense of humor. And he's, he's a man of God, but he, he calls me PJ, Pastor Jim. Well, when he heard this, he, my new nickname was CBPJ, crybaby, Pastor Jim. And, uh, and I laughed and, and I said, that's cool, that's fine. Um, But then one morning, a few weeks later, I was in prayer for all the sick people and the hurting people in our church. And and then I went out and turned on the news and the feature story was a school shooting where three nine-year-olds were killed by a 28-year-old transgender person. And I just couldn't take it anymore. And I just started bawling like a baby so much that I I stopped and I asked God, what is this all about? I, I usually don't cry like this so uncontrollably. And I realized my heart was breaking. There was so much evidence of the curse and sin's destructive consequences over people's lives that there was so much hurt and pain and destruction in our world and it just became overwhelming. Don't you feel that way sometimes? Where so much of this junk and, and it feels like sludge and mud and dirt and muck and mire is going on in our world and it just like can't take it anymore. Well, these are Jesus' tears here. His tears are the evidence of his heart. He knew the people of Jerusalem would reject him for the real reason that he came. And they, as a result, would die in their trespasses and sin. And in their pride and rebellion and hard-heartedness, they would reject God's only means of forgiveness and salvation and reconciliation. This rejection would lead to God's judgment upon the entire city. And he describes what will happen decades after his death and resurrection. The Jews revolted against Rome in 66 AD. They rebelled against Rome and they refused to pay their taxes any longer, which were exorbitant. But then you had the tax collectors who were extorting even more money out of them and they had enough. And they said, we're not paying you taxes anymore. And so from what I understand, Roman leaders tried to negotiate with the Jews and the Jews continued to refuse. And so Rome declared the Jews their enemies. And they leased siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, almost four decades after Jesus' death, burial and resurrection. And here Jesus is describing four aspects of his judgment over Jerusalem. And first the Romans would build a barricade to keep all the citizens in. And from what I understand it was first made of wood. And so the Jews burned it And so then the Jews made walls surrounding the city with stones so that they wouldn't burn it. Second, Rome's army would surround the city cutting off their food and water supplies in an attempt to starve them to death. And this was common practice. When you wanted to defeat your enemy, you'd laid siege of the city, cutting off all their resources. Anyone who tried to escape would be killed and they did this for five months and those who remained would eventually die of starvation. Thirdly, as starvation overcame many, Rome's army entered Jerusalem and they slaughtered everyone, men, women, and children, all 1.1 million that lived in Jerusalem. The only Jews the Romans saved were the strongest young men forced to fight and die as gladiators in the Roman arena. Fourthly, the Romans would crush the entire city, not leaving one stone upon another. They decimated every stone building in the city, including the temple. The only portion they left was a section of the West Wall that still stands today and is known as the Wailing Wall, where Jews still go to pray. And a few of the tallest towers, they also allowed remain as a reminder of the grandeur of this once city that the Romans decimated to tell the entire world that if you stand against us, this is what's gonna happen to your city as well. but Jesus is indicating here that Rome was just a tool in the hands of God to bring his judgment upon a people who rejected his son. The stones that are crying out, the stones of a devastated Jerusalem lying in broken heaps on the ground in essence saying, you rejected the one who came to you in love and grace and mercy, the one who came to rescue you from your sin. Jesus foretold the destruction of Jerusalem in 33 AD and the recordings of history tell us that it happened as he said it would in 70 AD, almost four decades later. It was their foolish, stubborn, proud, wicked, hard-hearted hearts that led to their own devastation. You know, I honestly struggled on how to land this message this morning. When our text ended like this with such devastating consequences for those who rejected Jesus, a city that he came to to love, to save its inhabitants by his amazing grace and mercy, it ends in total destruction because of its sin and rebellion and wickedness and outright rejection of him. The people who shouted their praises when they thought they had a political hero shouted, crucify him, crucify him when they realized he wasn't going to do for them or be what they wanted him to be. Jesus knew what their response would be. And as he rode that donkey approach in Jerusalem, he knew full well what awaited him, and yet he wept uncontrollably, not for himself and the pain that was ahead for him, but for those who would perish apart from his love. That is how much he loves every single one of us. Jesus had the opportunity to choose the path of least resistance over and over again, and yet he chose the most difficult path of all, the path of pain. He knew full well that death has to precede life, that crucifixion must come before resurrection. And it's no different for you and I. He's our example for our life of faith. We'll demand the same. I believe it's what he means when he said, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. We do so by looking back at what our suffering Savior did. He intentionally rode towards suffering and pain to set us free from sin and death. It's as if the entire ride to Jerusalem, we can hear Jesus say, I came for you, I came to do this for you. I came to do what you could not do for yourself. I love you that much. I want you to be with me that much. Come to me and I will never leave you, never forsake you, never disown you. It's as if he was crying out that to us the entire journey to the cross. This is the message of Palm Sunday. This is the message found in his first coming. there's more to the story, isn't there? What the Jews believed would happen that day he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey will happen in its fullness one day. The story involves a second coming when he will fulfill all the remaining promises of God in defeating and destroying every enemy of God, evil, disease, death, and the curse, where he will redeem and restore all things to his original sinless where he will sit upon the throne of David and will rule in justice and righteousness forever. And all his children, all who believed and placed their faith in him will live with him forever. This is the destiny of the world. This is the destiny of creation. This is God bringing everything full circle. And this is what we will get to experience as believers one day. My heart aches this morning as it aches every day for those in our church family who suffer daily. And how much more must our Savior's heart ache for you. And my faith is bolstered by your faith as you sing praises and give testimony to the greatness of your God while you live in pain and the uncertainty of your future here on earth. I know that one day I will be in your shoes, as a fellow sufferer. And the faith that you're demonstrating will be embedded upon my heart and will give me strength to endure as you are currently enduring. And I believe this is the message to those who suffer, Your suffering has purpose. Your sorrows are not wasted or worthless. God sees, God knows, God cares, for he traveled the road of suffering for you. His promises and rewards will be realized for you one day. I believe his words to you this morning are found in the words of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Although outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Just as Jesus was sovereign over his week of suffering, he is sovereign over yours as well. And because of a love that went all the way to the cross for you, you can be certain his love covers and surrounds you each and every day of your suffering, no matter what it is that you're going through, whether it's physical or emotional or relational pain and suffering, he's right there with you. Your deliverance from suffering may not happen in this life, in this world, but in the next, you'll be forever delivered from life's suffering, pain, heartache, and loss because he traveled the road to Jerusalem for you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, sometimes I sit and wonder how you could ever put up with such sinful, wayward, stubborn, proud, foolish people as us, and how at some point you just wouldn't toss your hands in the air and give up and say you've had enough. But even while we were yet sinners, even how you know every single ugly part about us, you went to the cross to take it all upon yourself. You said, shed your blood to free us from the guilt and shame, to free us from the things that hold us back, that strangle hold our hearts. You brought all of it on the cross with you. And for all who believe in you, for all who put their faith and trust in you, it's forever forgiven. It's forever remedied. It's forever set free. Lord Jesus, we know that as you sat on a young little cold, and thousands of people were singing your praises. You knew full well that you were heading to a path of pain and suffering for us. May your example for us as we experience the difficulties and challenges and trials and suffering of life, may that we not try to run from it or flee from it or numb the pain to find our own evacuation routes from it, Lord, but we might embrace it as the cross to bear for you. that you might redeem it and that you might bring worth in it and through it and that you might glorify yourself through it as you glorified yourself through your death burial and resurrection we thank you today that on that palm sunday that you didn't back away that you didn't turn away that you went full-born into your own pain and suffering so that we might forever be set free. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you with all of our hearts. Amen. Why don't you spend a few time, a little bit of time in just personal reflection on the meaning of Palm Sunday today and maybe ask God to prepare your hearts for what comes next Sunday, Easter Sunday. And as we have provided for you things on Good Friday, and to be prepared to to focus on on Christ's death on a cross, and what it means, and what He's done for you, and uh, get your hearts ready for uh, the rest of this Passion Week, and then we'll close in in a time of communion.